That'd be a great head. The Washington Dinas. <laughs> Washington Dinas. <clears throat> oh, that's the team that's the Redskins. Yeah. They should absolutely change the yeah. <laughs> to the Washington Dinas. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. Oh, hey, are you guys recording a podcast? Mm-hmm. Can I sit in? Yeah, you can. What's your name? Jeremy Ruggles. Okay. Would you like to tell me about your occupation and how it might be a interurban trend lord? That is me. And I... Oh, what a coincidence. <laughs> it's good that you guessed... <laughs> I'm really good at guessing people's careers slash hobbies. Yeah, and that's a good way to describe trend lording when marrying them between cities. You really want to find something with mass appeal. Huh. Okay. Is there any other hosts in the building, in the room, present, that would like to be accounted for? I I am here as well, that guy that was talking earlier. Oh, okay. <laughs> I forget so quickly. <laughs> Might you be a one Peter Juan Damien, uh, Juan Diego Cook? Peter Damien Juan Diego Cook, correct. Yes, I, I stumbled over that one. Thank you for reminding me. No problem. Uh, I'm guessing you were probably a Lake Erie surf reporter. Lake Erie surf reporter. That is a Lake eerie sir a, a, le, a lesser right a lesser as it's commonly known in the biz yeah i'm yeah. a lesser well thanks for the... joining us I'm, i know you've got a busy schedule so yeah it's a little eerie out there <laughs> the waves are a little lesser there <laughs> they're a little lesser at all the great lakes this year oh my can we please talk about a record now <laughs> sure okay so i didn't bring one did you i Peter? brought one no i brought one it's oh. me enough of this bullshit let's talk about this record but first, let's hear a song off of Dinah Washington's 1961 album, Unforgettable. I'd like to hear side A, track one, entitled This Bitter Earth. Please and thank you, Jeremy. This Bitter Earth Well, what the fruit it bears What good is love mm, That no one shares And if my life is like the dust ooh, that hides the glow of a rose what good am i heaven only knows mm. 
heard that song before are you familiar at all i was not familiar with it until i checked out the album the other night a couple nights ago okay i don't think i was familiar with that tune i am not okay i know the song uh from hearing the album but i don't know if i've really heard it other places that that was actually a really big hit for in the day but i feel like that one is not remembered as well as a few of her other songs so that was released as a single in 1968, actually reached number one in the R&B charts and got up to number 24 on the pop charts. And then it actually briefly charted again in 2010 for two weeks, kind of dipped into the Billboard Hot 100. Was it used in a movie or I couldn't movie? figure out what was the reason. I'm assuming it must have been a soundtrack or possibly uh, she might have had like an anthology release or something at it, that point. And how it is the way the charts work is really weird compared to what it used to be. So yeah. some oddball things can pop up in charts. I know that Dinosaur Jr. had a hit in Japan randomly recently huh. because it was algorithms on YouTube can do that in and, regionals. And I think you do see a lot of that with some of the bigger artists from back in the day. They'll have like an anthology release come out and then it'll like dip into the bottom of the charts again for a little bit. I know like Louis Armstrong will do that a lot with uh, what a wonderful world and stuff like that. Yeah. Used in a movie every year, I think. Yeah, for sure. Who was that lady? She had a a powerful voice. Absolutely. It's like, it was potent brimming with the possibility. Mm -hmm. Infectious. (laughs) So that was the one and only Dinah Washington who, uh, according to some sources, was the most successful black female artist of the 1950s. Her heyday was quite a while ago at this point. You know, we talk about a lot of old records, but still most of the records we're talking about are more in the 70s and 80s. This is like an entire generation before a lot of the other stuff we're talking about that still gets forgotten. So even though she was huge outside of maybe two songs, I feel like a lot of people have largely forgotten about her music to a certain extent yeah they have i can't say that she gets brought up in conversation very often in fact i think maybe one of the first conversations i had about Dinah washington was with you a few years ago sure yeah uh, i've been listening to her stuff for a long time and i think i don't remember the first time i actually listened to her outside of you know hearing what a difference a day makes in a movie and unforgettable in passing kind of thing but mm-hmm. you see her records all the time in record stores especially this record and a couple others from this similar uh, late career pop era and i remember just putting it on and being instantly pretty amazed by it and also there's i'm very picky with jazz jazz realm vocalist and she's one of the few that instantly was like yep this completely does it for mm-hmm. me yeah you know billy holiday was an instant for me i like some of the sarah vaughn stuff i like most of the ella fitzgerald but 
I really like uh, Anita O'Day. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like a lot of times jazz vocalists, and especially female jazz vocalists, get into kind of overly happy, kind of showy, fun territory. Because a lot of the jazz vocal music of the time period was was kind of was party music, basically. A lot of the big bands were strictly playing like dances and parties and. It's not what we would think of as like up tempo, like getting people going dance music now. But at that time, that was those were the bangers, you know. If our listeners liked that song, just drive immediately to your nearest Goodwill, and you will find one of her records in yeah, there. It's pretty mm-hmm. much guaranteed. That I know will. nothing about her. Never listened to her. You never even brought her up to me before telling her we were gonna do. Are telling me we're gonna do her album on this podcast, but I've been seeing her. Haunt- <laughs> that was an awkward pause. <laughs> but yeah, I've been seeing her records in Goodwill bins for many, many, many years, and it's just one of those you don't know till you know. Yeah, well, you better start snapping them up quick because, uh, as we've seen on literally every episode we've done of this podcast, yeah, everything we talk bump. about skyrockets in value there's a limited time frame get out there yeah we promise you that the median value of these records was five or less when we did the podcast exactly i know that they're exactly. like 15 20 <laughs> after the episodes air and do we have another song of hers that we want to yeah i had on? a couple other things i want to touch on before we dive into another track though peter if you don't mind oh uh, <laughs> I, I just want to i just want to listen to Dinah washington i don't want to listen to you that is fair uh so this, as I said, this is part of a kind of crossover time in her career where she was going into more pop music. It's still got a strong jazz influence, but it's remarkably more pop influenced than a lot of her earlier work. I mean, the title track in this is a Gershwin song. Mm-hmm. She's diving in pretty head on to the kind of a the darker side of a classic American songbook kind of material. Previous to this, her one of her two big nicknames or titles in the show business was uh, the Queen of the Blues which was actually a title that she embraced herself pretty strongly. Eventually in her career, she had a very conscious move of trying to break out of some of the stereotypes of what people thought she should be doing. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, how difficult it seems for female artists to guide their own career and make their own decisions in the music industry and how that difficulty is compounded by people of color as well. Uh, And she definitely seemed to struggle with that to some extent, but at the same time crossed over very, very successfully into these other genres and was able to make a lot of conscious career moves that a lot of other artists were not afforded. Yeah, this pop time period was the most successful part of her career, bar none. It was the only time where she actually crossed over into having top 10 singles on the pop charts instead of just the R&B charts. This record is not super well-remembered critically, which I find really interesting. I've always loved the album and up until researching this, had never really bothered to read about other people's opinions on it. A lot of people have kind of dismissed it as a cash grab, like throw a couple pop tunes on a record and get white people to buy it. And that's it. There's no artistic value. And I honestly completely disagree. And you guys can kind of make your own decisions as we go through the record a little more. I can't make my own decisions with Dinah Washington. She just wins me over the second. Yeah, I mean, totally. Like, how are you going to listen to this and think like, oh, yeah, this isn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> She's obviously not putting any genuine emotion into this song. 
Yeah, I think this album has a lot to offer. I think there's more dynamic than people give it credit for. And there's just so much passion and raw emotion and sadness. And it's it's very dark at times, too. The album is pretty low energy, low key. Well, that's not really the right way to describe it. But <laughs> it's it's composed mostly of ballads. And the ballads have a lot of dark thematic material. There's a lot of songs about heartbreak, loneliness, and wronged women. And I think uh, one of Dinah's great talents is how much range and emotion she can convey in relatively simple songs. A lot of this has not flashy backing tracks, very lush string arrangements, and she just brings that raw emotion into these songs that a lesser singer would not have been capable of. So with that, let's hear another track. Have we said the name of this album yet? Unforgettable. Okay. 1961, I believe I said it at the top. Apparently it was forgettable for me. Did you forget? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did not intend for that to happen. So I want to hear side A, track four. The song is called Alone. And I think this one exemplifies some of the darker material in here, but also really shows her vocal range and dynamic. The sky of romance above. I'm alone, alone on a night that was meant for love. There must be someone waiting. Lord, who feels the way I do? Whoever you are, please tell me, are you? Are you alone? Alone on this night? That we too could share alone, alone with your kiss that could make. So, how's everybody feeling so far? I know Peter, you're hook, line, and sinker when it comes to Dino. I, Jeremy, as a, a newer initiate to the world of Dino Washington, how are you feeling so far? I'm feeling sad. Mm hmm. She's good at making me feel sad. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Or are you just you're just too drowning in your own grief? I'm I feel immediately affected by her voice. Mm-hmm. We've already praised her voice, so we won't go back into it. But yeah, nothing is wild about the arrangements or even the song structures. They just seem like pretty direct songs and she like punches through a wall with the words in yeah. your like right into your gullet. Yeah, I don't think that there's any need for the arrangements to have much really flourishing or standing out with her because she is the centerpiece of of these songs and obviously mm-hmm. the people she was working with realized that. Yeah, the next thing I planned on talking about was the musicians on the record and I, I would agree that they never really seem to 
take the spotlight away from Dinah. And I think they do a very good job of, of making that happen. The more you listen to the record and pay a little bit closer attention to the music, it's, it's very solid. Like you can tell the players on here are some real pro level guys. So when I dug into who the players were on it, I, there's no surprise that these are some of the best musicians working in the industry at the time. I'll just start going down the list here. This album was arranged and conducted by a gentleman named Belford Hendricks. He was a prominent producer of the time. He specialized in a kind of signature soft R&B jazz crossover sound. He worked a lot with Brooke Benton, Count Basie, Sarah Vaughan, and later on, he worked with a young Aretha Franklin, who did a entire tribute album to Dinah Washington at one point in her career. Oh, Aretha she considered, did? Yeah, Aretha considered Dinah a huge influence on her. You have two guitar players on this record. The first one is Renee Hall. He was part of the house band for Specialty Records at one point. Either of you guys know about that label? I don't think I really do. Nope. They were a, primarily a gospel label, where which is where Sam Cooke got his start before going his own way so he was part of the house band for that and he played on a lot of hits for sam cook and then later on he did arrangements and production for motown and was on a lot of hit music coming out of the motown's studios for a while and he also played guitar on marvin gaye's let's get it on album oh, is, is he the i think so <laughs> yeah the him? signature lick yeah <laughs> yep other guitar players a guy named barney kessel are you familiar with that name? That name sounds familiar, but I can't place it. Barney was a member of a group called the Wrecking Crew. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy, you're a little bit less familiar with the Wrecking Crew, right? I think I was talking to you about them the other day. I'm very familiar with you telling me about the documentary that they're <laughs> in because you brought it up like nine or ten times at this point. Uh-huh. Go ahead. You though. could just play along for the posterity of this show. Play along? <laughs> For those of you that don't know, the Wrecking Crew was a loose affiliation of musicians in the West Coast during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, who were all the first call studio musicians for the majority of popular music coming out of that area. They didn't call themselves the Wrecking Crew at the time. It's not a name they came up with, and a lot of them were unfamiliar with that term until later on, kind of a posthumous title. There's about 20-ish people that are commonly considered to be a part of it, but then there's also a lot of other players who worked with those guys and were on a lot of the same records and were also in-demand session musicians. So it's a, it's kind of a gray area as to who it was, but there's a couple of key guys who were on this record that are, were in the documentary and have been on a lot of very notable albums. Is Hal Blaine associated with the Wrecking Crew? Yes. Okay. Tommy Tedesco was one of the other big names. He got interviewed in the documentary a lot. Barney Kessel, he worked a lot in the jazz world as well. He had he was a sideman on a lot of big jazz albums and was a leader on a lot of stuff as well. Uh, so he was definitely one of the Wrecking Crew guys that was getting more of the jazz and pop-oriented stuff than some of the more raw R&B and rock and roll. One of the most respected jazz guitarists of all time at this point. He's a very well-recorded, well-loved jazz guitarist. On piano, we have Ernie Freeman, who is another legendary session player. One of the most notable things is he is a Grammy winner for arranging both Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night and Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Wow. Yeah. Two iconic jams. And it's interesting that um, a lot of the players on here are not only just notable for playing their instrument on other records, but also were all songwriters and arrangers. I mean, these are like all people who are capable of leading the session on their own. This is like a super group of studio musicians that they hired for this record 
On base, you have Red Calendar, who's another highly respected, well-loved jazz bassist who was also kind of a semi-official member of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, He has countless credits on albums of all different kinds of genres. And he's also notable for being one of the earliest modern jazz tuba players. I don't think there's any tuba on this record, but uh, it is interesting that he had a reputation for that. Jazz tuba. Yeah. (laughs) And then uh, last up on drums, we have Earl Palmer, who is definitely one of the most notable members of the Wrecking Crew. He got started playing in Little Richard's band on his first few records. So he's considered to be like an architect of rock and roll. He played some of the very first rock and roll music that anybody in the world had heard and then went on to become literally one of the most recorded drummers in the history of music. Why haven't I heard of him then? Well, that's kind of the thing with these studio musicians. They weren't always grabbing the spotlight, sometimes out of choice and sometimes just based on the intricacies of the music industry and the politics of it. These guys were working on three, four, five albums every single day for decades and just laying down the most incredible, consistent music, sometimes like 18 hours a day, these people were working. Wow. Yeah, pretty intense. That's all the players on there. I think it might be time to dig into another track real quick. I'd like to hear Side B. If you could flip that record over, please, Jeremy, and play me track two, Ask a Woman Who Knows. every night and leaves me all alone he never tells me where he goes I'm not the only lonely one just ask any woman who knows to share our troubles and all our good times too but now I'm left with all the woes I'm not the only sorry one all you gotta do is just ask a woman who knows Well, the days are long, the nights are much longer. Lord, I got the lonesomest blues. My only consolation, I want this man to know that I've got nothing more to lose. Yeah, that voice just gets me every time. My wife, Ellen, I believe she's come up a few times on the podcast. Mm-hmm. but I've heard of her. <laughs> I have a couple Dinah Washington collections at home, and I put them on, and she's also just always on board with Dinah Washington at any time. And she's made this very clear to me that that's music that any time of the day is probably appropriate if we want to throw in music, because uh, there have been some times where... Maybe I didn't exactly make the 
right selection for the time. <laughs> I uh, One time we were decided that we needed to clean up the house a little bit. She was going to clean the bathroom. I think I was doing dishes and I put on Charles Mingus Black Saint and Sinner Lady. Yeah. And apparently she's, you know, she's very intellectually, intellectually interested in experimental music and whatnot, but she is also very emotionally affected by music and needs, if, with that type of music, probably needs something to channel it through, be it making art or dancing to it and yeah. not cleaning a bathroom to it. <laughs> and uh, after a while, she's like, can we put on something else? Because it's good, but I'm, it makes me want to murder you in your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very tense album. I often don't think of it as such, but I also don't try and clean bathrooms while I listen to it. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's not recommended. But Dinah Washington, she's like, yeah, this any time of day. Yeah, I've murdered on. that album, and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and I would also say that Dinah works on multiple levels where you can have it in the background and like, yeah, this is pleasant and non-offensive music, but it also stands up to just you know sitting and giving it your full attention mm -hmm. there, there's a lot to offer here it's very diverse in that it could be kind of casual background on a sunday afternoon music or really focused listening yeah. this would make me sad on a sunday afternoon well like focusing in just makes me sad <laughs> and i don't i don't really feel like I, I almost wanted to say that one thing about a lot of her music and i'm changing my mind on this because maybe it was just the records i have is that it does feel like a consistent tone generally, but this actually feels a bit more melancholy than some of her other stuff that I'm familiar with, like some of the selections you've played off this anyway. Sure. Was she a sad lady, Sean? What what happened to this? She uh, she had some shit going on. Yeah, for sure. We will definitely get deeper into that later in the podcast, so stay I tuned. I want to do it now. I wrote out notes in the order of which I want to talk about them, so please bear with me. Okay. Okay, so... I'm if sorry. it's all right with the two of you, I would like to briefly run down a history of her life story and her uh, career highlights, if you will. Well, I think that will tell us about what she was as a person. I think that segues That's perfectly. That's exactly what I it'll, wanted. It'll start to give you some insight. I think it's a good <laughs> way to get going. Let's, okay. let's go there. It, Jeremy set it up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Dinah Washington was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, on August 29th, 1924. And I will say that Dinah Washington is not her real name, but I don't remember what her real name is and I didn't write it down. So that use, information's use your, out there if use you want Use your internet it. device. Yeah. <laughs> I do know that she was suggested to change it by one of the early club owners that she was working for, just saying that her birth name didn't have a show business feel and suggested that he come up with something or she come up with something that rolled off the tongue better and i believe she came up with dinah washington and it just stuck and it's a unique name it does kind of roll off the tongue really well i gotta say i'm into it after being born in tuscaloosa her family shortly thereafter moved to chicago which is where she grew up and considered to be kind of her home base throughout her career later in life she actually owned a nightclub in chicago that she was frequently at and running when she was not on tour her mother was a very religious person, and Dinah grew up, as so many of her contemporaries did, singing in church from a very young age and discovering a love of music and lots of great practice and example of this style of very highly emotive singing that became her signature. Mm -hmm. She won a talent contest at the age of 15 for her singing, and around that same time, her uncle, who was also a musician, 
was helping her sneak out of the house that night to go to the south side of Chicago and perform at jazz nightclubs without her mother knowing about it. But you need a, an enabler uncle. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and she apparently was doing this for like a few years without her mother really knowing. Oh, and that then, is rock and roll as oh, hell. Yeah. And That's kind of on her mother too at that point. <laughs> getting away with it for a few years. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe it was a little bit denial. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I but, know her mother, and it was denial. <laughs> Thank you for shedding that light. Yeah. I, I know her, and she does. <laughs> <laughs> You're my fact-checking cuz. <laughs> Dinah's son instead in a documentary I watched that when the time came for his mother to break it, you know, for Dinah to break it to her mother that this is what I'm doing now. Like, this is becoming my career. I'm going to be, you know, a secular singer. Her mother was furious. That was like a... a a big deal you know a lot of people especially coming from a church background and consider a crossover into secular music a betrayal of your faith and your community and family and her mother was also very worried that she was going to go down the dark path of musicians and get into drugs and alcohol which unfortunately dinah did her mom was right yeah (laughs) mama knows best yeah i mean not many of those musicians made it out unscathed it seems like Sounds like she probably had some heartbreak, judging by that voice, too. Uh, That's a good guess, I must say. (laughs) Dinah had stated that a big turning point and inspiration in in her career was when she saw Billie Holiday perform at a nightclub. And it, it just changed her life. It was a huge inspiration on the way she approached music. And a big opening opportunity for her was getting a gig to be the upstairs performer at this club that uh, Billy Holiday had a residency at. So Billy would be performing on the first floor main stage and Dinah was like the backup bar upstairs. Oh, oh my God. I can't even imagine that scenario where I had to choose between <laughs> seeing Billy Holiday or Dinah Washington. I know that's bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> From that, she springboarded into getting a high profile touring gig with a jazz musician named Lionel Hampton. I've heard of him. Yeah, he was one of the most prominent big band leaders of the Mm -hmm. day. And that was during a time when big band originally was mostly instrumental. And then they started bringing in these singers because they were finding that the kids loved it when they had a couple singers to put over the songs. Then before you knew it, you had all these singers like Frank Sinatra who were suddenly becoming much more popular than all the bands. (laughs) (laughs) I just love when you guys say a name that I've heard of. So one of the things that Dinah has said was uh, it was a great opportunity to be able to play with Lionel Hampton and learning the ins and outs of the music industry and learning how to survive on the road because she was still very young at this point. But at the same time, she only was getting to sing like two songs a night and she felt kind of held back. She knew she needed to be more of a star. She had a lot more to offer than just being the token singer in a much more popular band. Her first opportunity to kind of break into the next level was in 1944. She recorded her first solo single. She was 20 years old at that point. And within the first year, she had two different hits. Her first uh, song was an R&B track called Evil Gal Blues. And that was followed up with a song called Salty Papa Blues. (laughs) Her earlier stuff was uh, definitely a more raw kind of up-tempo R&B sound, especially playing these more underground dive bar clubs people were looking for the most up-tempo raw precursor to rock and roll sound that was starting to happen at that time period you you said this was 44 that she was putting out her first stuff yeah okay yeah so that's like kind of end of the war getting Mm -hmm. so this is like two generations back from 
the forgotten stuff we've been doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. But is, you know, the direct link of how all that stuff came about. I mean, she was trailblazing in multiple ways here, which we will also touch on more later on. She was then signed to Mercury Records in 1947, so that's just three years later. And then over the next seven years, she had 27 top 10 R&B hits in a seven-year period. Is that normal? <laughs> not uh, not quite normal. <laughs> like As we said, she was one of the biggest stars of the day, period. Like, you know, if you were into popular music at that time period, you knew about Dinah Washington. She was all over the place. TV appearances, constant touring, tons of high-profile gigs. She was able to collaborate with basically any artist that she wanted to. Like Anybody wanted to work with Dinah Washington. Yeah, her popularity and coverage was all over the place. So this is kind of getting into the territory. I think a few of the artists that we've touched on so far in this podcast have been in that huge of one time and they're just sort of forgotten. Yeah. Is the heartbreak coming? It's it's coming. <laughs> We're easing on into it. <laughs> Probably the high point of her career was 1959 when she released her most popular song and her first top 10 pop chart song, What a Difference a Day Makes. Mm-hmm. Despite you know us talking about her being underappreciated in this day, I feel like that song will never die. Yeah, that's when I first uh, heard that. I was 16 years old flipping around on the AM radio dial and found some station out of Plainwell that... I think the first song I heard in the set was uh, Harry Belafonte's Deo. Mm-hmm. And I believe the next song was Dinah Washington's What a Difference a Day Makes. And I recorded it on cassette and was really into that whole set and that song. That was yeah. my introduction to her. And, and those two songs is a perfect uh, example of the contrast of her music versus other popular music. You know, a lot of other people were making this extremely light stuff. And even though she was scoring these huge hits... There's just so much depth to what she's putting into the music in comparison to her contemporary popular artist of the day. Mm. So Dinah unfortunately died pretty young on December 14th, 1963 from a supposed accidental drug overdose. She was 39 years old at the time. We'll again get into this a little bit more, but she was pretty heavily abusive of alcohol and hard drugs and was on multiple sleeping pills at this point. Band members and friends had stated that she was a a walking pharmacy. She had just like different pills for every part of her day. There was pills to help her relax, pills to help her wake up and perform, pills to come down off of that, pills to sleep. And the common theory is it just got to a point where it, there was just too much and her body couldn't take it anymore. The toxicology report said that she had two different sleeping pills that are are now both off the market. Like they were both found to be highly addictive and very dangerous. And I mean, as we know, sleeping pills can be pretty harmful, even if you're not intending it to be so, especially at that point, you know, early in the pharmaceutical industry when there was less regulation and study going on. Let's go ahead and hear the title track off this album. This is side B track six, Unforgettable. That's what you are Unforgettable 
make the argument the opening statement for this uh last period of discussion here that i think dinah washington is highly overdue for rediscovery in today's culture aren't you gonna ask me what i thought of that song what did you think of the song fine we'll go back to that sure just derail me we should comment on it because that's what we're supposed to do okay yeah i feel like tenderly crushed i like that a single tear is being like pressed out of my a little, my little tear duct here. And He's pointing to his right eye. Uh, behind the glass, right where the tear The right goes. side of his right eye. Yeah, that's how it makes me feel. <laughs> but in, the, in that song, in a more beautiful way, there is a little bit of melancholy under it. That one was like tender beauty. Yeah, even at the most like tragic and melancholy, the songs don't appear hopeless. I would say. Are you familiar with the, that song that we just heard, Jeremy? Only the Tony Bennett version. The Tony Bennett version. Yeah. Okay. I, I Which grew is up kind of cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Tony Bennett versus Dinah Washington. There's a fight right there. <laughs> I they were, uh, they were good buds actually. Were they? Yeah. They worked wow. together a lot. Yeah. Maybe I'm due to like dive back into Tony Bennett at some point and see. Nah. No. <laughs> I'm honestly, there seems to be a movement of rediscovering Tony Bennett and some of his contemporary lounge singer types. So I think we, we might have to dive more to that Gaga thing. Uh, oh yeah. They did do an album together a few years ago. Yeah. It wasn't that good. I, AMHO. <laughs> I, I remember Tony Bennett was coming on TV and, I was I was just like, oh, I got to see what this guy's about. Hey, mom, you want to watch Tony Bennett with me? No. <laughs> hey, you know, my mom wasn't into it. I wasn't going to seek out Tony Bennett either. I grew up with, as far as Unforgettable goes, Mama's I grew up. Mama's boy. What's that? <laughs> hey, she, she knows best. I grew up with the N- Natalie Cole and Nat King Cole, I think, did a version of that song together. They did. In the early 90s. Yep. Yeah, that's how I first heard that one. And yeah, Dinah kills that version and the uh, arranger and conductor of this record did a lot of work with nat king cole later on as well so there's a lot of connections within the music industry too from the section players 
Sean, you may proceed with your plan. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see if I can get my train of thought going again. So like I said, I really believe that her reputation and legacy is due for rediscovery and kind of a reimagining in some ways. And I, I think it's very relative to today's culture more so than people would realize. And I, I think her image and what she accomplished would resonate today really well if uh, people kind of dove in a little more. In what way? Well, I'm glad you asked, Jeremy. As I stated before, she was kind of a trailblazer for women and especially women of color in the music industry. Uh, she crossed over into multiple genres and different images at a time when women were rarely allowed to have any kind of dimension to their persona or th the music that they were creating. She was considered a very controversial artist at the time, especially some of the local Chicago papers were supposedly writing attack pieces on her sometimes multiple times a week during the height of her fame. She was known, especially around Chicago, for throwing these very wild, lavish parties and just being kind of a badass at all times and not really caring about what her reputation was and not trying to give a conventional image. And of course, the powers that be of the, the popular media were not about that. They did not want to allow her to have whatever image she wanted, but she just kept going with it and maintained her success despite people's best attempts to shame her and kind of ruin her reputation. At a time when they were trying to pigeonhole her as a, you know, you stay on the R&B charts. You can be listened to by other black people, but you can't cross over into real success. So the fact that she made records like this and had so much success with it is a very powerful statement and a huge accomplishment on her part in a, a lot of ways, not just musically, but her influence as a person as well during that time. I sense heartbreak coming. <laughs> I just sense it. She was very notable for just never wanting to play by the rules. So she would change her image at times. Like I said, there was periods where she would make television appearances and concert appearances wearing a blonde wig which seems like not a big deal at this point, but at the time was super controversial, mm. especially from a racial angle. We're like, it's one thing for you to try and court this pop image and get white people to buy your record, but to wear a blonde wig as a, as a black woman, you can't do that. And she also not only was receiving some hate from the uh, white press for that, but then also was also viewed as like betraying her roots in some ways. And she just kept doing it. And I think a lot of the press I've seen about that and people remembering it, they kind of just passed it off as, oh, she was just trying to court these pop record sales kind of thing. But the vibe that I'm getting from it is is much more of a... Yeah, it seems like a statement. It's more of a statement. It really feels that way, especially because she wasn't getting favorable press for it. If it was simply yeah. a cash grab, she would have been making less controversial decisions. Yeah, I think, I think it's super interesting the way she kept going with it. And the, the more I thought about that as well, it's very commonplace to hear stories of these female artists who were either taken advantage of by their partners or people they worked with. You know, you hear tons of women who married someone who ended up strong-arming them and taking their money or manhandling their career. Like yeah, Melanie? Like, yeah, like Melanie. That's what exactly. I was going to say, too. That was the whole story there. And th there's a lot of attention paid to the fact that Dinah was married something like seven different times, often for like a few weeks at a time. Wow. And a lot of it is like, oh, well, she just 
I was always searching for something she couldn't find, and it was so sad that she couldn't stay with one person. But at the same time, there's no story of any of these people taking advantage of her. There's there's nothing like, oh, she married this man who took her money and manipulated her career. She ended all of those relationships. Yeah. She was always the one in control of she everything seems, that was going on. She seems to have a lot of agency. Absolutely. And then with the the music industry as well, like we've talked about, she was the one making these decisions on what kind of song she was going to create, what her image was, the direction she was going. And she would uh, go in and out of these different circles multiple times within a year sometimes. 1959 was What a Difference a Day Makes. This record doesn't come out two years later. In between, you have stuff that's going back to more of a traditional R&B sound. There's jazz records. She just was kept doing whatever she wanted to do at any time and was making it work. She was killing it financially. There's also a couple great stories from people that worked with her. Tony Bennett, as we mentioned, is a great admirer of Dinah Washington and worked with her a lot when she was alive. And he had this great story that when he was doing his residencies in Vegas, he said she had a habit of she would show up to Vegas unannounced with a couple of suitcases, just walk up to him and say, I'm here, boss, and then would literally work any casino that she wanted to in Vegas and would just jump on everybody else's show because every musician respected her and wanted to work with her. And she was just such a talent that she didn't even have to like be on the marquee. It would just be like, oh, Dinah's in town tonight and she's playing at like whatever club or casino kind of thing. And she would just do that all the time. This is, uh, yeah, this is pre-social media when you had to actually leave your house to like get be in front of people and get their (laughs) attention. Yeah. uh, that would have been like mob era Vegas too. Yeah, totally. So she was just riding like she was going wherever she just wanted. It was amazing. Ass. Yeah. There was the big Quincy Jones documentary that his daughter made, I think like last year. And uh, he had a couple of really good things to say about Dinah Washington. He actually credits her as being responsible for jumpstarting his career in a big way to a point where, I mean, who knows? He might not have made it quite as far as he did without her. At one point in the mid 50s, Quincy had had some pretty good gigs working with people like Ray Charles and some of the other big bands, but he wanted to break into writing arrangements, which was an extremely hard thing for a black person to do at that time. And he wasn't getting paid very well or getting offered any big jobs as an arranger. And he had met Dinah Washington at gigs and she had asked him to write and arrange one of her albums that she was doing and told Mercury Records, you know, I'm getting Quincy Jones to do it. And they told her, no, we want you to have a bigger artist, someone with with like a recognizable name that we can put on the record to sell records. And her response was, (laughs) here's a name for your ass, Dinah Washington with Quincy Jones as a ranger. And that is the record that came out. And Quincy Jones was apparently just flooded with work ever since after that. Because she just forced him to put on, to be on the record and then still made it successful. I just I love it so much. Like the I, more you dig into her, it's just so awesome. I was already very on board with her knowing absolutely nothing about her as a human being. And uh, now I'm in love. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that doesn't get talked about a ton is she was a very talented instrumentalist as well as being a vocalist. She was a apparently an incredibly accomplished pianist, sometimes to the dismay of the pianist who worked for her because she was a notorious perfectionist, especially with piano. And it's like, she could play these parts. And if you were not playing it the right way, she was going to tell you about it. She's but like it, Captain Beefheart. <laughs> in some Except ways, could yeah. actually play an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, some of these musicians would be telling these like relative horror stories of getting fired or getting their pay docked because of some little thing. But at the same time, they all worked with her for years and had nothing but respect for her. 
in the long run because she knew what she wanted and it worked mm-hmm. you know a lot has been said about how much of a kind of deeply troubled deeply flawed person she was as we said there was some heavy drug addiction going on you know a lot of looking for love and not really knowing i guess where to find it or what to do in that regard i mean listening to these songs there's definitely a lot of themes of heartbreak that feel as you said jeremy they just feel so genuine you know that's got to be informed by real life experience and when you dig into her it's it's apparent that there was a lot going on there was a lot she was dealing with and i'm sure you know going back to the the negative media attention she was getting she worked through it kind of thing but that can't have been easy to deal with especially at that time period mid 50s being a prominent black woman trying to deal with the press constantly shaming you i'm sure that was an immense amount of pressure and stress to be dealing with yeah i feel like just a lot of women in showbiz that really broke through and someone like lucille ball in comedy like they had to be really headstrong Mm -hmm. to in this male dominated industries to come through so i'm not surprised to hear that you know she had that much strength and personality but uh it's really incredible to hear some of the stuff she did yeah absolutely and she was majorly popular right up until the day she died the musicians that were on tour with her at that point stated that they just did not see it coming at all you know they knew she was struggling but it was very unexpected tragic loss i mean she had a lot more a lot more to give a lot more records to make i mean she was she was dropping like four or five records a year at this point you know like her her output is is incredible i can honestly say as far as from a record collecting standpoint if you liked this album you cannot go wrong with a dino washington yeah that's i was actually i was i was gonna make that same point i've never heard a lesser one i've Mm -hmm. one that they're very consistent yeah so you can find lists where people will talk about the records of hers that are considered to be the masterpieces but at the same time there's none that are duds if you find one in a dollar bin and it's in good shape, just pick it up. You're going to love it. There's a pretty wide range of styles, as we talked about. There's the pop stuff. There's big band jazz stuff. There's more raw R&B stuff. One of my absolute favorite 45s to play at dance parties is a surprisingly raw R&B single of hers called Soulville. It's like a really up-tempo, extremely dancey song. She even had a couple songs in the dirty blues genre, if you guys are familiar with that. It was a popular underground subgenre of like raw and very raunchy like R&B and blues songs that were just like extremely thinly veiled metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> she literally went everywhere with her career. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. All right. Start your engines. Everybody uh, get running down to the nearest Goodwill and start driving up those dino washington median values yeah the value is going up as we speak since we haven't really talked about the uh album cover yet i feel like a lot of her albums have this kind of artwork on them where it's just sort of like this scenic idyllic i feel i feel like the what a difference a day makes album has a similar album cover to this one they do i mean this in a lot of ways was modeled after what a difference a day makes because it was so successful so it's a similar font similar layout it's not a band photo she's not on the album cover it's supposed to be kind of a like a mood mood piece kind of a melancholy you know they're watching the sunset listening to this kind of sad music 
she has a lot of other different album covers. She's on the cover of a lot of mm-hmm. ones, especially the more jazz oriented. Yeah, I think I have one that she's on the cover of. And then, yeah, but I noticed this one had that similar yeah. vibe. The ones that are yeah. easiest to find are the pop ones, obviously, because they, they sold more than everything else. So there's just more of them out there. So, yeah, it's this one, What a Difference a Day Makes. And um, totally drawn a blank on the third one. But yeah. the, they have similar vibes. But again, they're all good. Buy yep. them all. All right, go get them. Yep. This has been another episode of I Buy That for a Dollar. It sure has. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Peter Cook, and what are we going to go out on here, Sean? We are going to go out on a appropriately titled song. The song is ended, but the melody lingers on. I believe that's on side A, Jeremy. Beautiful. The song is ended, but the melody lingers on. You and the song are gone. But thank you for listening to another fantastic on. episode of I'd Buy That. As always, well, you can reach us at I'd Buy That Podcast at gmail.com. I just wanted to mention it seems about a third of you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts. So if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, go leave us a review. Go put a comment on there. It really does help our music, our music, our podcast get out there. Our music podcast. Our music podcast. (laughs) Because the algorithm will show us favor. The more you interact the more the algorithm likes us. Also, don't forget, March 27th at the Green Door Distillery. Our debut live episode. Yes. We're excited. I think we we can safely say that we are all very excited about this. Yes, I am too. Yeah. We are all excited. 7 p.m. doors, 8 p.m. the show will start. You have to be at least 18 years of age. Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo, Michigan. It's free. You have to be 18 years of age no matter where you're from, though. But the event is in Kalamazoo, Michigan. (laughs) Good clarification. (laughs) I'm sure people would have been confused. (laughs) I'm 14, but I'm from Indiana. (laughs) Let me in. I will sneak you in through the back door if you're 14 and from Indiana. Yeah, all you gotta do is DM us on Instagram, which you can find us there at I'd Buy That Podcast. Good tie-in. Okay, bye. All right, bye. Bye. Oh, too soon, say the moon. The moon descended, and I found with the break of dawn, you and the song had gone.